Now hear a reading from the book of Genesis, chapter 35. Then God said to Jacob, Get up at once to Bethel and live there. Make an altar there to God, who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So Jacob told his household and all who were with him, Get rid of the foreign gods you have among you. Purify yourselves and change your clothes. Let us go up at once to Bethel. Then I will make an altar there to God, who responded to me in my time of distress and has been with me wherever I went. So they gave Jacob all the foreign gods that were in their possession and the rings that were in their ears. Jacob buried them under the oak near Shechem, and they started on their journey. The surrounding cities were afraid of God, and they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. Jacob and all those who were with him arrived at Luz, that is, Bethel, in the land of Canaan. He built an altar there and named the place El Bethel, because there God had revealed himself to him when he was fleeing from his brother. Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died and was buried under the oak below Bethel, thus it was named Oak of Weeping. God appeared to Jacob again after he returned from Padan Aram and blessed him. God said to him, Your name is Jacob, but your name will no longer be called Jacob. Israel will be your name. So God named him Israel. Then God said to him, I am the sovereign God. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation, even a company of nations, will descend from you. Kings will be among your descendants. The land I gave to Abraham and Isaac I will give to you. To your descendants I will also give this land. Then God went up from the place where he spoke with him. So Jacob set up a sacred stone pillar in the place where God spoke with him. He poured out a drink offering on it, and then he poured oil on it. Jacob named the place where God spoke with him Bethel. They traveled on from Bethel, and when Ephrath was still some distance away, Rachel went into labor, and her labor was hard. When her labor was at its hardest, the midwife said to her, Don't be afraid, for you are having another son. With her dying breath, she named him Benoni, but his father called him Benjamin instead. So Rachel died and was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is, Bethlehem. Jacob set up a marker over her grave. It is the marker of Rachel's grave to this day. Then Israel traveled on and pitched his tent beyond Migdol Adair. While Israel was living in that land, Reuben went to bed with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard about it. Jacob had twelve sons. The sons of Leah were Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, as well as Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun. The sons of Rachel were Joseph and Benjamin. The sons of Bilhah, Rachel's servant, were Don and Nephtali. The sons of Zilpah, Leah's servant, were Gad and Asher. These were the sons of Jacob, who were born to him in Padan Aram. So Jacob came back to his father Isaac and Mamre to Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac had stayed. Isaac lived to be 180 years old. Then Isaac breathed his last and joined his ancestors. He died an old man who had lived a full life. His sons Esau and Jacob buried him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Lord, in this moment of silence, speak to us about your word. Father, we come to your word believing that in every story, in every verse, you want to speak to your people. But sometimes, Lord it's, Lord, it's hard to see, so we ask that you give us eyes to see. Sometimes it's hard to hear you. We ask that you open our ears, give us ears to hear, that we would see and perceive and hear and understand. Give us hearts to believe. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, we have been studying the book of Genesis uh, since last fall, and um, and if you've missed all of that, it's it's all online. You can catch up real quick. Um, 
But this is, a, this is an interesting moment in the story of Genesis. This is kind of, this isn't the last time Jacob will be mentioned, but this is the last major chapter uh, that focuses on Jacob himself. And what happens in this chapter is that Jacob essentially relives the, the journey of his grandfather, Abraham, who got called uh, uh, out of his home and traveled along and, and hit the same places that Jacob hits in this story and then uh, lands in the place that God shows him. And that's, that's the place that God has promised one day to give to their descendants. So that's what's happening in this story. Um, but just before this story, we were at what I think is the low point of Jacob's life. We were in a place called Shechem, and Shechem is chapter 34. And in Shechem, um, Jacob, he wasn't supposed to be there. That's the simple, that's the simple fact. He had told God back in chapter 29 that he would return to his father's land by way of Bethel and that he would worship there. But then in chapter 33, he's with his brother Esau and they're planning to go back home to uh, the land that Abraham uh, had set up. And instead, Jacob deceives Esau and he goes to Shechem and he buys land in Shechem and he tries to do the right thing in Shechem. He sets up an altar and he names it after God. And right away, things fall apart. His only daughter is uh, the victim of a violent crime. Uh, the, Jacob responds very poorly to that. And then, um, and then his sons, when they see how Jacob responded passively, they deceive and attack and destroy an entire village. Uh, it's, it's a mess. The only time we see Jacob really get upset in that passage. You would think he would be upset after his daughter was attacked. The only time he gets upset is when he thinks, put him at risk. Is this microphone having problems now too? Are we okay? All right, I think we're okay. I'll deal with it. So, um, so Jacob is at a, he's at a low point uh, in Shechem. Um, and this passage opens with the good news. It's, it's remarkable what happens in this passage. The very first words of Genesis 35 are the good news according to Genesis. Then God said to Jacob. I think that sentence should read, if I was writing the story, then God gave up on Jacob. Like, that's it. You guys... I mean, I, I know I'm highlighting this a lot as we've been going through this, but the more I've studied Jacob, the worse he gets. The the guy, he has these little moments where God appears to him, and yet he continues to struggle. What a lesson for the people of Israel, the first people who are hearing this, the Israelites wandering in the wilderness, now obeying, now disobeying, now worshiping God, now worshiping idols. Their God draws near to the brokenhearted. If we flash forward to the Jesus's day, uh, this, is a, this is something that the religious elite just couldn't understand. Maybe we don't really understand it either. Uh, we and they expect God to draw near to 
the faithful, the righteous, the holy ones, the people with all their ducks in a row, kind of like the way we like to act on Sunday mornings. But there's Jesus sitting amongst tax collectors and sinners, and the Pharisees confront him. Don't you know who you're sitting with? And he makes it plain. He says, those who are healthy don't need a physician, but those who are sick do. Go and learn what this means. I want mercy, not sacrifice. For I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. This is the remarkable thing about the way the God of the Bible moves and acts. Jesus has come to offer his kingdom to the last people you would expect to receive it. His opening line of his big opening sermon is, blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to them. This week, Taylor, who just read for us, and I were talking about this. And we realized that that's, a, that's an odd statement. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, you would expect somebody who owns the kingdom of heaven to be rich in spirit, right? Isn't that like the very definition biblically of being rich in spirit? But so blessed are the poor in spirit, for they will be rich in spirit. It sounds contradictory, right? What, what are we talking about? I think Jesus is speaking of a mindset, a posture, maybe a circumstance in which we need to embrace how low we are. Dave Rhodes, our elder today, often says, we don't realize how far we have fallen. At this point, Jacob is actually quite rich, materially speaking. He has a lot of people. He has a lot of animals. Uh, he, you know, he's basically a traveling village himself. Uh, his, his people were able to destroy an entire other village. But he has yet to learn the heart that God seeks in his people. God is not looking for the rich, the proud, the accomplished, or the mighty. He's looking for the poor in spirit. In Jacob's case, he needs to keep traveling but he's walking with a limp. Remember, he wrestled with God and, and God punched him so hard that his hip went out of joint. <laughs> I, I can't imagine what that was like. Um, that's one way God enables Jacob to be poor in spirit, but he keeps forgetting. So how does God remind him? He does it so graciously in Genesis 35. He reminds him, he protects him, he restores him. And that's what he does with us to teach us to be poor in spirit also. So this passage opens with God reminding him, go back to Bethel. That is a reminder. Now, I, you guys know I've, I've grown accustomed to mistrusting Jacob because he's always lying. His name means deceiver. That's what Jacob means, not Israel. He's always lying. You know, I don't trust his, his, um, his motives. Like, would he go back to Bethel if everything in Shechem was working out great? Probably not. Probably not. It, he might not quite have heard God on that one. He might say, I don't think that's what God 
is saying to me. The wounds of Shechem will stay with Jacob's family for the rest of their lives. But those wounds, I think, actually laid the groundwork for Jacob to hear God's voice clearly. Now, in our own lives, we're like Jacob too. Sometimes the circumstances are what make us ready to hear God's call, to hear God's invitation for a change. I mean, think back to one of the big significant changes of your life. Maybe, maybe you finally decided uh, to pursue sobriety. Maybe you needed to change jobs. Maybe you needed to move. Maybe you needed to, um, to make a change in, uh, in an unhealthy relationship, right? Think back to any one of those. It, it, it is likely that if everything was going great when those things were a part of your life, you wouldn't have changed. But on the other side, those circumstances were what allowed you to hear wisdom, perhaps to hear God's voice, and to make a change. In this passage, God calls Jacob to remember two important things. He calls him to remember his vow. The, the words that he says are, go up at once to Bethel. Now, this is an interesting note. God never explicitly commanded Jacob to go to Bethel. But when Jacob was fleeing from his brother Esau many chapters ago, God met with him at Bethel. He has this dream, it's Jacob's ladder. It's this amazing scene. And Jacob makes a promise at that point to return back to his father's house by way of Bethel. That's the promise that Jacob makes. He says uh, in chapter 29, if you do all these things you say you'll do for me, speaking to God, then I'll return to my father's home and the Lord will be my God and, and Bethel will be the house of God where I will worship him and give back a tenth of all you've given me. That's a vow that God makes before God. I'm sorry, that Jacob makes before God. It's easy for us to treat words lightly. In fact, we have all sorts of ways to strengthen our words. We have contracts and signatures and penalties and whatever. If you, you know, if you need your word to stick, the bank's not just going to give you money on a word and a handshake, right? So we have all sorts of ways to get people effectively to understand the importance of their commitments. God graciously just reminds us. Friends, still in, 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 in Christian life, we make vows. We make vows to one another. Some common vows that we make are vows at the time of baptism, either parents or the people or the, the convert getting baptized, they make big vows about the way they're going to raise this child or the way they're going to live, the way they're going to be connected to the church. We make vows when we become members. You know, you go through that membership class, I'll be telling you about the big vows that you might be making. That's a commitment to one another. We make vows, of course, when we get married. These are vows before God and these witnesses that we are committing uh, to, to uh, this relationship, come good or ill difficulty or happiness. When ministers get ordained or when elders get ordained, we make really big vows before people about the way we'll live before them, the way we'll live before God. Gosh, when we stand before God and his people and formally commit to something, God in his grace holds us to it. He reminds us of it. 
Why? I, I just can't quite wrap my mind around this. But there's something happening when we make a vow in that context in which the creator of the universe, like the universe, partners with us to show the world who he is. And this is how God does it, you guys. The primary way he wants to show your family and your neighbors and, and your coworkers and whoever else who he is, is through you. That's the way he wants to do it. In fact, the way he's shown us who he is in scripture was through people. Scripture isn't just a book that floated down from heaven and somebody, you know, said, oh, I f you know, I found it. I decoded it. No, this is human authors and with their, their research and their personalities and, and their memories and they are writing and yet God is partnering with them to show the world who he is. In some ways, the, the Bible teaches us about Jesus being fully God and fully man. The Bible is God's words and people's words. At the same time, this is how God works. And he wants to do that through you. He has given you agency, authority to do that. So we should be incredibly cautious with our vows. Some are quick to make vows and big promises, right? In fact, Jesus says, don't vow by, you know, don't promise, make oaths by, by heaven or, or by earth or by the altar or by your own head. You know, be, he's saying, be cautious. Don't be flippant with our vows. But also, there are times that it is appropriate to make those commitments. The things I mentioned are examples. Vows are always bigger than us. They were bigger than Jacob. He either forgot or he was avoiding fulfilling his vow. They're always bigger than us, marriage or membership or any of the others. That You can't do it. <laughs> it's remarkable. We let people stand up here and make these vows like we should be shouting, no, you can't do it. <laughs> like whenever I stand with people who are getting married, I'm like, you guys, you're going to fail at this. Congratulations. <laughs> and yet when we remember these vows, we become poor in spirit. We're not up to the task, but they invite us to entrust ourselves to him. The second thing that God helps Jacob remember is his presence. He, he is the God who appeared to Jacob. Remember, I have come to you. I am with you. And Jacob quickly responds, let's go, let's go up at once. I'm going to build an altar to God who responded to me in my time of distress and has been with me wherever I went. But here's the deal about God's presence. It is a forceful presence. By that, I mean, God doesn't really share the space with other gods. At this point, no word in Genesis to these, the early family of God, there's been no word that says, worship God only, don't worship other gods. Did you know that? We're 35 chapters in. The Bible hasn't yet told God's people to worship him exclusively. They're carrying around all these trinkets thinking those are going to help them too. Isn't that interesting? They're still working it out. Well, who, who is this God? And yet in this moment, this is the first moment in which the family, the chosen family says, wait a minute. If we're going to follow this God back to Bethel, 
We can't bring other gods with us. And so, just like the people of Israel in the wilderness have to do time and again, just like we have to do time and again, they, they effectively dig a pit and dump all their, all their stuff in it and bury it. Why do they do that? Because they remember God's presence. Now, here's the deal with Jacob. He has never before considered purity. He hasn't. You know, I give Jacob a hard time because he deserves it. And, um, and he's never before said any word about living faithfully or, or, or righteously. You know, the best was when he got appeared to him in the dream before. And now he, this guy who has spent his life self-justifying and deceiving everyone around him, he's calling his entire community to be pure, to get rid of their idols. What happened? Well, I, I'll let the, the, a famous British preacher named Martin Lloyd-Jones, uh, they called him the good doctor because he, he was a physician before he became a preacher. Um, he, he explains it like this. You will never make yourself feel that you are a sinner because there is a mechanism in you as a result of sin that will always be defending you against every accusation. We are all on very good terms with ourselves, and we can always put up a good case for ourselves. Even if we try to make ourselves feel that we are sinners, we will never do it. There is only one way to know that we are sinners. And that is to have some dim, glimmering conception of God. That's the grace that he gives. So why, why would God bring his presence back to Jacob? Well, I think it's because Jacob is so broken. I think he's drawn to Jacob in that way. And he wants to show with Jacob what he's like. Here's what Dane Ortland says. I love this. Dane says, if you are part of Christ's own body, your sins evoke his deep heart. That is his compassion and pity. He sides with you against your sin, not against you because of your sin. That's the gospel, you guys. That's the good news. He is with you, even with the stuff you're struggling with. And so for the first of many times, the fledgling people of God throw their idols into a pit and bury them. They purify themselves. Do they do this so that God's presence will be with them? No. They do it because God's presence has come to them. And that dif that's all the difference in the world. We don't earn God's presence. We don't. We can't. He comes first. And then he draws us to himself. Jacob has become poor in spirit as he remembers. And he experiences his poverty in spirit as he travels. Remember, he's limping along, leading his people back to his family's house. And as he goes, God protects him. The last time we saw Jacob at the end of chapter 34, he was furious because he was so afraid that he was going to be attacked and killed. And yet as he goes... The Lord puts the fear of God on the surrounding peoples so that none of them attack Jacob's family as he travels. Now, God doesn't always protect us in exactly that way. 
Last week, I mentioned those two missionaries, John and Gwen Haspels, who were shot in the face while they drove to Ethiopia, and we got to meet them a few years ago. God did not protect their bodies, but that terrible incident has been part of one of the greatest revivals that is happening on planet Earth right now, you guys. Look it up. In, in, in Ethiopia and throughout East Africa, there are tens of thousands of people coming to know the Lord. He is meeting with them in remote villages. He is drawing them to himself. There is something amazing happening in East Africa right now. And what God did with John and Gwen has been part of that. All right? But in Genesis 35, at just the moment that Jacob is terrified, God puts the fear of the nations, that God puts the fear of him in the nation's hearts. Jacob and his family pass through untouched. What a lesson for the Israelites wandering in the wilderness. They are not warriors. They're not. And yet, can they trust God? Can they trust him as they follow the pillar of smoke and fire through the wilderness? Perhaps this story gives them a reason to do so. The last thing that God does to help Jacob be poor in spirit is he, he restores him. I want you to notice something at the very beginning of this passage. I, I don't have it on a slide, but the text wants us to think of Shechem as a place. Now, Shechem was the chapter before, but twice in the first verses of this chapter, it says, go up to Bethel. Like you're low and you need to go back up. Bethel is a high place. God is lifting him back up. Every word, every step is a restoration. And when God meets with Jacob in Bethel, he restores him to his new name. He taught him that his name was Israel before when they wrestled together. Gosh, it is such, it's real life that you have a conversion experience. You're given a new identity, and then the next day you're the same old you, isn't it? I, I, I imagine that there are some in this room who, when you became a believer, it was dramatic, miraculous things that used to be a part of your life um, evaporated. That's really cool. And that happens rarely. Most of us, when we convert, a little while later, the emotions wear off and we revert, and then we convert, and then we revert, and then we convert again. Old habits die hard, shame sets in, and we go back into our old identity. And yet here, back in Bethel, God says to Jacob, hey, your name's Israel. You're new in me. And when he gives him the new name, he restores the original blessing that he gave to all of humanity, to Jacob through his family. He says, be fruitful and multiply. What's that? What does that remind you of? Genesis 1, right? The very beginning. This is God's mission for his people. This is the blessing of God enacted in his people. Be fruitful and multiply. This is God saying, hey, what I originally planned for people, I'm going to do through you. The image of God is being restored in this broken man. Now, when God told Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply, he called them to rule over the rest of creation, to represent him over the rest of creation. 
What does he say to Jacob? Well, first he restores the blessing of Abraham. You'll be a nation. No, you'll be a company of nations. Many will come from you. You have not lost the promise because God is faithful even when you are unfaithful. But then the, climb, the restoration hits a new climax, a new high. God says, kings will be among your descendants. That's what he tells Jacob. Now, the Israelites in the wilderness, they're, they're wandering. They're going to go into the promised land. They don't know what lies before them. They're trying to be established as a nation. Maybe they hear this and think, wow, we're going to be a kingdom. We're going to have a king. And then generations later, that's exactly what they ask for with, with Saul and David and Solomon. And that's what happens. God gives them kings. In fact, their kingdom splits and they have multiple kings. This prophecy comes true in, in kind of messy ways. Even though they repeat the sins of Jacob again and again and again. That, that's what the Israelites heard. But believers, what can we hear? What king is God referring to? Who is this king of glory? All of the kings in their brokenness and in their righteousness, they point to King Jesus. And this broken man's line and Jacob's line is the restoration, not just of him and his family, but of the world. The king of kings, the one who would restore the nations by making disciples of the nations. What had Jacob done to earn any of this? Nothing. He spent his whole life running, manipulating, hiding, fighting. All he does in a moment of desperate need is hear God's voice and turn to the promised land. Just like Jesus in all of his ministry, it can be summarized like this. Repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Hear his voice and turn. That's it. That's the call for us. God followed him all the way to Laban's house, all the way to Shechem. He didn't leave him. And then we turn back. So, all right, there's, I've talked about half the chapter and I'm about to finish, I promise. But the second half of the chapter is kind of a challenging one. Um, we can't miss that after Jacob turns back, he's got to deal with his pain. He's got to deal with his messy family. He's, he's got a limp home and he suffers loss on the way. This apparently beloved nurse, Deborah, his, his favorite wife, Rachel, his, his son Reuben betrays him and tries to steal family leadership from him and, and cut out some of the other brothers. It's a whole complicated Israelite political thing, but I won't explain it right now. But Israel, you know, Jacob, Israel, he's no longer running from it. He keeps on going. He gets home. He's not trying to twist it and use it. He settles in. He belongs to God. He takes his lumps. He is poor in spirit, perhaps for the rest of his life. He owns the kingdom, but he has to walk in brokenness. Jacob made a vow in chapter 31 that whoever stole Laban, his father-in-law's household gods, would surely die. He didn't know that it was Rachel who stole them. And here, the next time Rachel shows up in the story, she dies in childbirth. His pain follows him. Jacob tried to manipulate his father and his brother and steal their blessings, and now his oldest son does the, does the same to him. Jacob's story has kind of a painful landing as he comes home. 
But even this is an encouragement to us, church. As we are restored, God gives us what we need to face the stuff that comes with us. You're not just cut off from it. You're empowered to face it. As I was looking at this chapter, I was thinking about the 12 steps from, from AA. And if you're familiar with the 12 steps, it's a remarkable discipleship process. I would encourage anyone to walk through it. But I want to just tell you, not all of the steps, but a few of them, because it tracks with, with Jacob and what I've been saying here. Step one, admit that we're powerless over whatever addiction. AA says over alcohol. Step two, come to believe that God can restore us to sanity. Step three, turn our will and our lives over to God. Now stop there. What does all that sound like? That's conversion, right? That's the beginning of faith. If, you don't, if you're not a believer, that's, that's how you start. There's nothing else required of you. You start like that. I'm joyful, you're done. No, actually, you're not. That's when the, there's 12 steps. I just hit three. This is when the work begins. Step four, you make a searching and fearless moral inventory of yourself. Step eight later calls us to make a list of all the people we've harmed and be willing to make amends with them. Step nine, make direct amends, sorry, to such people whenever possible, except when to do so would injure them or others. Like, that's hard work. You're digging up the past and you're going to get dirty. But as we are poor in spirit, God enables to, us to do that. We get to return home with a new name. And that's what Jesus allows us to do. Because when we do that, we become free. Israel will not run anymore. His life will never be easy. He's going to face loss and death in his, in his sons. He's going to face famine. But now he is freely, fully, joyfully limping, poor in spirit, ready to see what God will do next. That's the story of Jesus, you guys. He doesn't conquer death by being the mightiest king. He conquers death by effectively surrendering to the Jewish leadership and the Roman government, handing himself over to death. His disciples thought he was crazy, surrendering. You're going to lose to win? And yet that's exactly the story that we walk. Friends, as we become weak, he is strong. So, on the very night that our Lord was betrayed, he took the bread, and when he had given thanks for it, he broke it. And said, take this and eat, all of you. This is my body, which is given for you. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And every time we eat this bread or drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again and again, learning the lesson that we do nothing to earn it. We come up to this table empty handed and he gives us himself. He restores us. He protects us. He reminds us.
Let's pray together. Father, in this moment, prepare our hearts to come to the table. Lord, I pray that you would do work in each person's mind and heart right now. If anyone here is not yet ready to say, I can't earn it, then that's okay. Um, you can, this isn't the meal for them right now. But for all who are ready to come empty-handed, in weakness, poor in spirit, I pray, Lord, that as they eat this bread and drink this cup, the kingdom of heaven will belong to them. In Jesus' name, amen.